Hello, and welcome back to Where Are All My Friends. This is one of my favorite episodes. It has been a long time coming. This is really special. This episode is with Tim McTagg from Under Oath, King State, Carolhood, and a billion other things. The reason this one is so special is Tim has been a friend of mine for a while now. We've been wanting to do this podcast for a while now, but he's a very busy dude. And we finally were able to cut out some time and do it. And what we get into in this episode, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you're friends with somebody and you go to record the podcast and you know each other so well that you maybe don't cover points that are important or it doesn't go in the direction. And the exact opposite happened with this, where it was the perfect podcast and we covered so much. He told his story so well. It was so inspirational. It was so interesting. We talk about his early days before being in a band, before being an under oath, growing up in Florida. Um, the beginning days of Under Oath, specifically like when the moments of chasing safety started popping and what that feeling was. But then we get into more about just him as a person and the way that he views life and business and how he evolved into building King State and just his general perspective on life and the lens that he looks at things through and why he treats people so well and why he thinks the way he does. And it was just such a bigger episode than any one specific topic while at the same time covering so many topics. So truly one of my favorite episodes. I think that Tim is such a remarkable dude. He sets such a great example of a hardworking person who truly wants the things in his life and earned them, and the amount of insight and inspiration and just everything that you can learn from him is remarkable. Now I have one more thing. Because this episode is so important to me and I genuinely want as many people to hear it as possible, I'm gonna do a giveaway of a $100 King State gift card. You can buy yourself some coffee, some merch, whatever. And all you need to do to win it is rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, and then share this episode anywhere you want on social media. It can be Twitter, it can be an Instagram story, whatever you want. Just make sure to tag me and Tim at Andrew underscore FTW and at Tim McTagg. And then rate, review, subscribe. If you don't listen on Apple, just subscribe wherever you're listening. Make sure to tag us so I can see that you did it. I'm going to make a list of everybody. And then on Friday, this is coming out on a Monday. On Friday, I'll pick a random winner out of that list. I'll email you the gift card, get whatever you want. And I'm doing this really because I genuinely appreciate you guys. And this one's really, really important to me. All right, let's get into this episode. Where are all my friends joined this week? with Tim McTagg from Under Oath, King State, Carolhood, and probably a billion other things that I'm not realizing because you have done <laughs> everything. I'm so stoked that we're doing this right now. We've talked about it. We've been in Florida together and we are two busy people and making it happen has been tricky, but here we are. Yeah. Yeah. I'm finally glad we got to do this. I know you were down turn of the year, New Year's Eve-ish, right? Yep, a week into yep. December and then a week in January. Yeah, trying to but sit it was, down face to face, but it was just bananas over here. It was weird times because I was still recovering from my broken legs, so I was not all that mobile. And then you were just opening the new King State store, right? You, you were going in. Yeah, we were building a bar. We, we worked like 11 straight days in Lakeland for our second Dude. location. The- we didn't think we were going to be open that early and then... 
we heard rumblings and we were like, there's no way they're going to be open. And then all of a sudden we realized, oh, they are going to be open and we got to hustle. So yeah. we sat there and literally the day that the health inspector came, we were sawing through our concrete countertop to cut a ledge off because we couldn't fit our cooler into the stall. And we like boarded everything up and they started at the far end of the building. And by the time they got to ours, we had cleaned everything up and kind of just stood in front of the chipped piece and passed our health inspection. And then we opened that night. So it was pretty insane, but we got it done for sure. You made it work. I felt like I experienced that in real time too, because we were texting. You're like, all right, maybe I can do this. Oh, wait, no, I just worked 13 hours. Oh yeah, I bailed on you like (laughs) six times. Like, dude, tomorrow for sure. I remember even coming up with the idea of I'll get up at 4 a.m. I'll Uh meet you at King State at 5 a.m. Then I'll be off to construction by 6.30. And I was getting home at like 7, 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night, depending. So I know none of that worked out, obviously, but. That's like, in a lot of ways, that's everything I love about you is like you were so down to work so hard and give everything the time of day. And that's a lot of what I want to talk about in this one. Um, And I think, a lot of people know you for Under Oath, which is incredible. The band did amazing things for music, but there's a lot about just you that I am very uh, interested in and I've seen, and that super crazy hard work ethic is definitely part of it. So I, uh, I have a little bit of an outline here, some things I wanted to get into. You down? For sure. Yeah, let's go. All right. So the first part is, I am so curious. I know that you joined Under Oath at a very young age. But the idea of Tim before music, like, I don't know you, like, if you didn't have music, I can't even imagine you, but what was that Tim like before any type of music? I can't, I can't really remember. Um, I grew up in a really small town in Florida called Newport Ritchie. And then when I was like 14 or 15, my parents bought a house in Brooksville, Florida, which is another really small town. Um, and yeah, I mean, I had a lot of hobbies, I guess. I like, I wrestled in high school for a year. I skateboarded a lot. Um, I didn't really do much cause there wasn't really much to do. Um, started going to shows when I was probably 14 and fell in love with music and then rented my first guitar on my 15th birthday and then joined under oath two years later. Damn. Um, but before that, I mean, I don't know. I cut grass. Uh, <laughs> I just, I worked. I always loved working. I, f- I tried to find ways to, you know, be working before the legal age. And because I was homeschooled for a few years in high school, I was able to work for this lawn business for cash under the table when I was 14 years old. And I would go out three or four days a week and this dude would pay me a dollar a lawn. So I'd make like 70 or $85 a week, which for someone who can't work was insane. But then you I mowed 85 that, lawns. I mowed 85 lawns to get that $85. <laughs> and it was probably some sort of like child labor <laughs> law, but it was a friend of the family's and he didn't need the help. He did it as a favor. And, you know, it was a crew of three of us. So I'd either be on the weed eater or the blower or whatever it was. And we'd just grind out. 15 or 20 lawns a day for a couple days a week. And that's how I kind of saved up all my money to buy skateboards and then buy my first guitar and all that stuff. And then uh, that's about it. Yeah. I mean, no, that says it. It's crazy too. Cause I had the, another question I had was, were you born and raised in Florida? 
Um, and you painted that picture. Like I grew up in Clearwater really. So not too far from Lakeland, Newport, Richie, any of that. And I, I get it. Like there's nothing to do. I worked a job at 14 too. Like all these things like that, I completely get it. And I can assume yeah. that you skated around, maybe went to spot, did whatever. And then you find a guitar and I mean, Florida music scene is incredible. So I yeah, would assume that was. as soon as you had any of that, it was just like, oh, cool. It's game on. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, you know, the weird thing with a lot of our friends in Florida was that we grew up in a kind of sheltered bubble. I mean, I vividly remember like having a bunch of tapes like Wu-Tang Clan and all these random get-up kids and things like that. And they were all just unmarked because I know that I would have been loosely in trouble if uh, found listening to them. So I always lived in my Walkman. Um and so, yeah, going to shows was a bit tricky, um, but there was a lot of like churches that did a lot of like, not just like quote unquote Christian hardcore shows, but they just opened a lot up for like anyone. And a lot of times there'd be a kind of mixed bag of bands, uh, State Theater and the Refuge local venues Dude. in Florida are like Dude. legendary. So I think once I started just quote unquote going to shows, there wasn't really a lot of checks and balances from yeah. my parental units. So that really opened it up and I kind of got to explore and go to different shows and go to different festivals. But yeah, I, I never grew up like going to Warp Tour or, you know, I didn't see no effects when I was 13 and get my mind blown. It was like a completely different insertion into that culture by way of just this small group of, you know, people that would hop around to different shows locally, but really like 411, all those skate videos. I used to get the 411 volumes sent to my house and that's where I found out about Radiohead and, you know, so many different things. And I think the skate culture was the gateway into everything that I ended up falling in love with and falling into after that. Because that was the only time I could do really anything that was outside of, Florida. I mean, yeah. I, there was, I didn't grow up with like a cool local record store. There wasn't any cool FM or AM stations that I knew of. So it was just who has what around me. And then these, you know, skate videos would come in and you'd hear, you know, Biggie and Tupac and all this stuff splintered out through all these different segments. And that was honestly the only real culture I had for a couple of years. It's crazy you say that because I remember getting 411 VM tapes as well and like hearing Talib Kweli and like all these like yep. everything. And it was the only, you didn't have the internet. It was just this outside source of like, damn, there's so many people that understand what I like and so many cool things that like kind of shaped your taste. And that's really cool to hear that that came before music. That explains so much in my head. Yeah, and what's weird too, like the business side of me now knowing how the music business works, it's like hearing all of those like heavy hitting bands on a 411 skate video, like Tom York's scoring movies now. So I'm just like, I know the budgets weren't, you know, 55, 60, 150 grand to get that Nine Inch Nails or that Biggie Smalls song on this clip for this video, but now the whole world of sync has just grown. It's really interesting to look back at those and look at the actual playlist and go, dude, this would, if I wanted to make a skate video today and have all of these same bands on it, I'd have to have like a million dollar budget just for licensing. 
Dude, I didn't even think about that. Like the the flexibility they had to just put stuff in there. Like people didn't understand it then. It wasn't the same. Yeah. Like if you just played three seconds of an Under Oath song at the beginning of this podcast, it would get taken off YouTube. Yeah. Like that's how stringent licensing is now where in the past, it's like, I don't know how they got away with it. And I was too young to even think about it. But thinking about 25 years ago, it's like, how is Radiohead and Wu-Tang and all these massive artists on these like, DIY VHS skate videos that they sold to skate kids like me for 15 bucks a month. That's so true. But I mean, thank, thank goodness they did include it because that shaped so much of our culture and what we knew our taste. Um, Absolutely. Wow. Okay. That's awesome. That is, thank you for connecting that piece because I was so curious. Like I know you've played for so, I mean, since 15, 17, joining the band. Yeah, like that's, 21 years now. So it's hard to remember what I was doing 24, 25 <laughs> years ago, but yeah. Well, thank you. That's that's cool. Um, another thing that I think is really interesting about you is you are not traditionally or formally trained in any instrument, right? You're entirely self-taught? Yeah. Yeah, I've never taken a guitar lesson. I don't know how to read music. Uh, I mean, I know basic chords. Like I know, you know, C and an E and a D and all the basic stuff that you can learn on the internet. But yeah, I don't know scales or theory or anything like that. I have tried. I've always thought like maybe I'd be better and more creative if I had more tools in the toolbox. And then I always just get really bored with it. And, and I've just never, I've never really connected with a reason to want to do that. I think I'm trying to learn like the Nashville number system and be able to be more dynamic and jump in with other people rather than having it just be something that's in my head and I don't know how to explain it or get it out to anyone else without showing them and taking an arduously long time. But aside from that, yeah, I've, I've never, I, yeah, I've never felt the need to do that. And I never have done that. I actually, I think that's really cool. And I admittedly, like, I don't know really much of anything with music. I could probably play like two chords on a guitar. That was never my journey. But what I think is incredible is now there's this entire new generation of kids that can produce and make songs start to finish on a laptop as one person. And I just think it's incredible. I think it's a really cool example to be able to say, no, you don't need to go get formally trained. If you have something in your head, if you feel something, if you can make a song that translates, that's what matters. Yeah. I mean, I I honestly don't think as a music consumer or as a human, anyone's looking for the guy with the most credentials to play music. You know what I mean? It's like, there's so many songs, like hit songs where someone's like, oh yeah, I was sad and I wrote that in an afternoon, never thought I'd do anything and now I'm a millionaire, you know? Um, Yeah. It happened with Post Malone. It's happened with so many different people in so many different genres and whether I like the song or respect the artist or not, it's proof that people don't care about the piece of paper from Berkeley that you have if what comes out of the speakers when you're done doesn't move them. And I think for me, I've always looked at music as more a creative process rather than uh, an architectural or uh, engineering process, right? Like you you could be an architect and not be trained and it's still wonky and it doesn't make sense. Like there's certain professions that you actually need training 
to do properly. Like I can't build a building without some sort of training and load bearing and knowing how wind and XYZ stories have to be separated in music. Like whether it's me and logic or me on my iPad with a 808 app, like if it's in my head and get it out, I think that's the whole point of the whole thing. And then if what's in my head is good and you like it and you tell five other kids or adults or anything, now we're in a different economy and a different structure of exchanging creative ideas. Right. And I think that's the difference. Yeah. It's uh, that to me, I'm just fascinated by it. And again, I'm not an artist or a musician in that capacity, but I, I actually think that that's a really cool example to set to say, hey, if I hear and see something in my head that moves me, that's meaningful to me, and I can translate it, what makes that any different? And I, I think that's a really cool lesson to, or an example to set for anybody that has that, where it's like, you don't need to feel insecure about not stepping up and having this formal training. If you can move somebody, you're doing it. Yeah. And I think it also puts a lot more onus on the artist too. Because I think there's a lot of people that kind of can get discouraged. Like they don't have the right gear. They don't have the right this. They never had the chance to take these lessons. So now it's not worth it. And then the more you hear about these people who are self-taught and just naturally creative, but not naturally talented and have to drudge through the technical part, I I think that's more inspiring and freeing to me. But it also doesn't, let anyone off the hook for not doing it because they don't have X, Y, and Z. So I think you kind of, you kind of spread in my head that kind of spreads a pretty big line in the sand between people that will get it done and people that need all of these things to get anything done. And I think even the technology, I understand why people think this DJ isn't a real musician because all he does is press buttons. I understand the logic behind that until you open up an Ableton session and someone says, here, you make it. And you realize like the genius is not in if they are actually physically playing at that DJ set in the basement or the warehouse or ultra, it's how in the hell did they even come up with all of these little splices and sonic blips and blurps and soundscapes inside of a box and not even touch an instrument. Like I think that's as much, if not more talent than someone who can play a Yingve Malmsteen guitar solo with their eyes closed. And one of them is a lot more pleasing to listen to, which is why that whole scene kind of blew up and surged. And I think that's what we're seeing with hip hop too. It's like, it might be a little bit more digestible, which then could be frowned upon. But I think if you really listen to the genius and the simple in all genres, I think you start to connect the dots of like, oh, this guy is really, really, really good. Yeah, and he only needed something. four tracks to get a point across instead Dude, of I, yeah. a symphony. I love that. So that, that's really cool to hear you talk about that. And the other thing is you have been a pretty big piece of writing music and not only Under Oath, but all of your other projects as well, right? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't really have a lot of other projects, but yeah, in Carolhood, like me and Nate and Reed, uh, the other two members, we all collectively write pretty much everything together. Um and yeah, and under oath, like, yeah, a lot of stuff starts with guitar or at least did. Now we're in a much more blended space where Chris is just taken off and he's super talented and he always was, but now I feel like he's got all of these talents that he's refined and also like built along the years where he can just 
take something from start to finish. And it's like, I don't even want to play guitar on that. Like, let me play a keyboard <laughs> or something. Um, so it's, it's, it's a lot more balanced now, but yeah, in the beginning, a lot of the under oath stuff was always like, what riffs do we have? And we'll just start there. Uh, yeah. I think that's like going back to, to close the loop on not being trained. I do think there is a point where frustration mounts when you have something in your head and you can't get it out. And I think like the first under oath record that I was on changing of times was that is like, I have all these things in my head. This is the best way I can make it come out of a speaker. I'm not happy with that. And then as we kind of hmm. went through chasing safety and to find the great line, we kind of hit our stride of like anything we can think we can make and play now. And that's about the time where my brain just kind of stopped going. Well, you don't need anything else. As long as your brain can't outthink your left and right hands, you're in a pretty good balance and you're right where you should be. Bro, that just blew my mind the way you said that. The first well, album, like you're not being able to like, this is the best I can do for what I hear. And then hitting that stride where you're like, cool, anything I can think, here it is. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I, I liken that to like uh, creative puberty and the sense of like, you're changing, you're getting stronger, you're getting taller, your voice is deepening, but you're not like, a developed thing yet. You're in transition yeah. to go from music listener to music maker. And then there's this clunky teenage years where you have braces and, you know, you start getting all your little things going and all of a sudden you're 16 and you're on the wrestling team or you're a quarterback and it's like, ah, oh, there I am. Like it, yeah. it was kind of that type of moment where it's like, this is the first time like chasing safety demos. Like, the things coming out of the speakers are things we made and we really, really like it. And that's the first time it was like, oh shit, we just did this, you know? And, that, and we don't, we don't want to do anything else. Like this is exactly what we want. And so once you hit that point, you get into a really interesting space where it's like, so what are we going to do next? Because now I have confidence creatively and technically to get the creativity out properly. Yeah. And once, that, once those things align, it, it all makes sense. Dude, that is so freaking cool to hear. That was awesome. Um, okay, and I know, again, there are so many podcasts that you've done. Uh, so if anybody is super deep interested in specific albums or under a story, I, I don't want to tell that story over and over again. It's been told. Search sure. the internet. You'll find a billion podcasts. Um, but my one, just selfishly, there's this one aspect that I want to know. <laughs> so... Chasing Safety came out 2004, right? Mm hmm So how, how old are you then? I was 21. Okay. So you've hit, your, you've hit that creative stride. You put that album out and the world loved it. Like that was such a game-changing moment. And again, I know it's probably been covered a lot, but because I wasn't in music at that time, I'm so curious of like tiny little like nuances and subtleties about that era. <laughs> so you got, okay. you did warp tour on that album, right? Yeah, we did. We did the okay. whole tour for free. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We were on Cause the you were that stage. small in the beginning. Yeah. And we were on the smart punk stage and they told us that they were going to pay us a hundred dollars a day. And then we got there and they gave us a sleeve of 50 samplers. And they're like, they're like here's your payment. And we're like, what do you mean? And they're like, oh, you have to run the lines and sell these for two bucks. And when you sell through your box, that's your day. And we're like, no, nah, you keep those. 
We'll just do it for free. And we just lived off of merch and just grinded it out. Okay. Could you feel it? Like, what was the first tour? I don't know if it was Warped. It would, probably would have been. Could you feel it happening? Like, what were the things happening when you're like, wait a minute, people really like this? Yeah. I mean, it, it was so weird because it was the first time we've actually done the full tour. So it wasn't, there's not really a frame of reference of like, oh yeah, we did it oh, 01, fair. 02, 03, and then 04, something magically changed. Um, but I do remember us doing, I believe it was a CD release tour, two warp tour with 18 Visions, I think it was. And 18 Visions was like, you know, national touring band on like what Trust Kill or whatever the record label was. And we kind of did this like back and forth tour and our records came out on the same day. We were kind of doing some like collab promo stuff and we went on the tour and it, they were on Warp Tour as well. And like, it was just everyone. I forget who was on that year, but I feel like it was like Thursday and The Bled, Seosin, like everyone was popping and it was like super sick. And we played next to The Bled every day and like that band, I can't believe that band wasn't the biggest thing of all time because they were so good and so fun to watch. Like, watch them almost every day. Um, but yeah, so like we're going and it keeps going, it keeps going. And then we kind of start having bigger crowds and all of a sudden you realize, you know, everyone is a big crowd because there's just more people and it's warp Tour. And then stuff started changing where we'd play a show and then we'd turn around and we wouldn't have even gotten our guitar cabs off and like the field's empty. And you're like, uh, oh, they were all here just because they saw our name on a time slot. That's weird. You know, and then we started playing some off day shows and those were selling out. And yeah, there was, there was one moment in Atlanta specifically, the Smart Punk stage was normally a stage, but this day, wherever the Atlanta Warp Tour was at the time, yeah. we got put on this weird mezzanine, a wooden mezzanine, like one of the things like some like folk rock guy would play on yeah, the way like a, into a, a real show acoustic guitar yeah. stand sort of <laughs> like a like a you know a stage in the park type setup <laughs> yeah and it was all wood and we were playing and we turned around and we started and like this weird kind of just passer by area that wasn't meant for people was just packed like block party uh -huh. style and then we start playing and the crowd just swarm the stage, like pushed all this weight up, broke down the wooden barricade that was there for like the acoustic pop-up show. And all these security guards were standing there like holding it up with their feet. And then they shut us down. Uh -huh. Like they literally said, you guys can't play anymore. And this guy, the security guard from Warp Tour starts walking around and shutting off our amps because they're trying to control the, this little mini riot. And we're all just turning around, turning our amps back on. Like he'd start stage right, <laughs> shut my amp off. By the time he got to Grant's bass head on the other side, my amp's back on. Aaron's like, fuck this, keep it going. And we just kept going and literally almost got kicked off of Warp Tour that it's day. One of, it's one of those things where I imagine like that going to Kevin Lyman and like deep down at his core, he's like, damn it, that's punk rock, but I no, have to be. <laughs> it, it very much was. Like the security guard, obviously, and looking back as an adult, I'm like, I get it. Like these idiot 21-year-old yeah. kids put all these, you know, actual kids in danger. It's a huge liability. My job is to keep everyone safe. Nobody was doing anything wrong. But for us, we're like, no, 
this is real. This is finally yeah. real. Do not take this moment away. So we were like, Holy. we're not stopping. And then they ended up grabbing us like a whole nine yards. And like, that's when we were like, dude, that's one moment. I don't think I've ever told that story. If I have, it's somewhere in the ether. But that moment we were just like, oh shit. Like this thing is for real. And then we went on a tour later that year with Coheed and that was the last tour we did in a van. And we went from like new record, we hope it does well to six months later, like being in a bus and never looking back. And it's like, it all happened in 180 days. Like it was That's that quick. So insane. Every band dreams of that. Every band probably incorrectly thinks that's what it's going to be like. They're like, well, we wrote this. Yeah, it wasn't and even a dream for us though because it wasn't even possible. You know, like even going back to where we started, like cutting grass for a dollar, like growing up in these small towns. We're from Florida where, where no music really thrives, you know, yeah. quote unquote. Even though if you do some digging, you realize Florida's really, really, really rich with arts and music, but just overall, we never thought we, our little band of six weirdos would ever do anything like that. So it wasn't even like a dream. Like we actually had real dreams and goals. This was like not even on the radar. And so when it happened, it was just insanity. That's so nuts. Cause you also didn't really have like the internet to show you these crazy things, right? Like you'd go to shows, you'd see big bands play. Yeah, I think... I might be getting the, the years mixed up by one or two. It's either 04 or 05, but Pure Volume came out. Yeah. And that was the first Spotify. You probably don't even remember Pure Volume, do you? I, no, I remember it. It was, uh, what did it, it, didn't it turn into something later? It was like I a music blog. It was like, but it was like a music player. Like, yes. where, where you, it was like SoundCloud, basically, like the first SoundCloud. And I remember yeah. us and Fallout Boy were the first bands on Pure Volume to eclipse a million plays. And it was like oh. us and Fallout Boy. And it was this weird thing of like, it's us and Fallout Boy? Like, what? And it was just was Fallout Boy huge to y'all? Yeah. I mean Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and yeah. they they became even bigger and they're yeah. still massive. But I mean, even to be compared with bands like that that have like these big teams and lots of money and radio and major labels, and we're on solid state and we live in Tampa, Florida, and it's like for all of this stuff to kind of be neck and neck, yeah. but not have the amount of power behind it. It just felt so surreal. Not to take anything away from people that have, you know, a large team and a lots of infrastructure, but we didn't. And so when we're keeping up with like these big ships and we're just this little jet ski, it felt really, really weird and really cool. That's so cool. And I was curious too of like van and buses. So you do a van tour with Coheed and Cambria in what, 2004 or five? Yeah, that was 2004. And um, it was just yeah. game over after that, huh? Yeah, we had, I think, 11 people in a 15 passenger van and we drove Dude. around for six weeks and it was just drive all night, play, drive all night, play, four, four on, one off, something like that. Playing like six shows a week. And you did worked in a van too, huh? Warp Tour, we had a bus. Okay. Then it broke down. Then we rented an RV from Cruise America and drove ourselves. Perfect. And then the bus met us back up later. And then, uh, yeah. Then we just Damn. kept going. But the bus broke down like three or four times. We paid like nothing for it. And yeah. And then we bought a real van and did the tour. And then that was it. 
That's so crazy. What about like other pieces of culture around then? Like what were other albums that were coming out? What were artists that you guys looked up to? Like what, what did the Tampa scene look like? Like who was playing state theater then? Like if you were to go to state and watch somebody sell that out. Oh man. Uh, it wouldn't be anyone local. Like Tampa scene. Yeah. Like what was, what was talked about? Like as you guys were coming up, who was on top? Oh, it's coming up for sure. There was like seven star from Ocala. There was sleeping by the riverside, obviously like four hours away. There was like strong arm and then further seems forever. And Chris Caraba and all of that kind of popped newfound glory. Um, Yeah. So there was, there was a lot of that. I mean, locally, locally, like not much. Um, you know, and then fast forward five, six years later and a data remembers in Ocala now in Orlando. And it's like, there's always every decade, two or three bands from Florida that come out that just seem to just take over somehow. And it's It's really interesting. Yeah. That's, that's why I was so curious because by the time I got into music, like I really found music probably 2006, 2007, So you guys were already hometown heroes and I'm growing up in like Tampa Clearwater. So by that time, it it wasn't even an idea that Under Oath couldn't be huge. So like like hearing that see the the rise or like the 50 people at State Theater two years ago, it was just like, oh yeah, they sell out. That makes sense. Oh, it was just the, it was the band with the girl in the mask and like that all my friends listened to. Like it was, there was nothing else. But see, that's it though. Like that's what's so interesting is- Literally eight months before that date, we were losing money in a van, making like $50 every month Yeah, each, you know? It's like we would go out for $200, $300, spend 85 on gas, spend 120 on a hotel. Everyone got five or 10 bucks for food. All the money's gone and then you just repeat. And then you scrape a little on merch, pay your merch bills, whatever you have is what you have, you know? And it was so interesting to see how much it changed. Like it's, it, it was, yeah. I mean, I even think about it now and it's just, in, I, it, it doesn't seem real, but I yeah, know like it what's is. The, what's the but, equivalent now? I guess like blowing up on TikTok, I guess, something like that. Like, yeah, literally. Know. I mean, it, but it was like so drastic. Like it's, yeah. it, it was just, yeah, I don't know. And I know what happens every day. Like one new artist went from, I put up my new thing on SoundCloud or I just sent in my feature for this song and they wake up the next day with a million plays and 50,000 texts and 5,000 emails. Like, it's not that we're an outlier, but when it happens to you, it's different than going, oh yeah, that happens to people. And yeah. then you realize like, wait, I'm people? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it's just that thing of like, oh, this literally can happen to anyone. Like, I think at the time, Aaron was the only musician in our band. He's the only dude that knew notes. He's the only dude that could play piano. It was five dummies and then this one redheaded kid who is super talented. And somehow we did all that, you know? That's the most inspirational. That's so cool to hear. And like, just that, I feel it, right? Like, I feel what it's like to be a Florida kid. I get that. And hearing you explain that blows my mind. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's, it still blows my mind. And when I say dummies, I don't mean like we had no talent, but it was just, no, we were, our creativity was the only thing we had. <laughs> Let's put it that yes. way. We had, and we I had one basket and all of our eggs was in one basket. 
Yeah, and when that, like, and when that cool. basket wins, like it's crazy. Like I would never even encourage my children to do that. Yeah. Like I like it's so rare that it's not even a business model. I wouldn't be like, oh, you want to be in a band? Like you go for it. You can make it. Like, no, you can't. Okay, but check me out. Here, this is the perfect segue. I think that there's something that I notice about you where, okay, yes, you'll admit you guys put everything you had into it. You believed in it. It comes out. You could not have expected it, nor would you recommend somebody chase that path. However, you were given an opportunity and there is a lot of ways to fold and ruin an opportunity once you get it. And you guys did not do that. And I have seen you were one of the hardest working people I've ever met that had to have been crazy to be like, okay, we have a real chance. Don't mess this up. Yeah, I think I was actually just talking to my friend Tyler about this. He lives in LA now, but we grew up together and he was our old roommate. And he went on to do a bunch of rad stuff. He's like a model and making movies now and stuff. But like at the time we were all these like Tampa, you know, rat kids just doing nothing. And, you know, when you reflect on it, now, 20 years in, anyone who's successful that says they did it all is a liar. Like, it's all luck at some point. There's just as many good writers as J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis that just didn't walk into that room and get that one publishing deal that one day or know this guy who happened to know this guy. Like, there's so many things in the universe that has to align for you to get your shot and if you recognize that that's unique and special and that you have no control over it, it allows you to go, wow, that was amazing. But then you're left with a choice. You have a lot more opportunity now. Was it luck? Was it your hard work? Probably a little bit of both. What do you do with that? And yeah. I think to call chasing safety dumb luck, I think could be reasonably accurate. But then after that, I think it takes a lot more effort and vision to keep something like that going for 15 or 20 years. And that's yeah. when the luck runs out and like you take over and you're in the driver's seat. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think yeah. sustaining under oath and always pushing creatively and making the decisions we made with the opportunities and the quote unquote luck we had is the mixture of why we're still around. I think we worked our asses off, but so did every other band. We happened to pop. Yeah. And there's bands like The Bled and Me Without You and Beloved that should have been as big or bigger than us, but they never got that chance. That's the yeah. luck part of Under Oath. Then you see all these other bands come. You know, you see, uh, we don't have to name names, but... A lot of, like, we've been on Warp Tour for eight years and we've seen bands that were bigger than us last year and not even on the tour this year, every yes. year. So it's yes. like, we saw a lot of other people get that same chasing safety, quote unquote, luck moment, but then it just died. Yeah. And it's like, then you still have, every time I die, you still have, you know, bands like Alice in Chains, you still have Corn, you still have Slipknot. Like Slipknot had dumb luck once. They were the mask guys that were scary and everyone gravitated. Sure. You can say that, and it's probably partly true, but then to be relevant 20 years later and selling out arenas, that is genius. That is yeah. hard work. That is being self-aware. That is changing, staying relevant amidst everything happening. Where and does so, that come from in you, though? Like, where did that come from? 
and all of y'all. I don't know. I think for me personally, and I think for most of us, I know for Aaron for sure, um, like we all grew up pretty lower middle class and or loosely poor, not poverty by any stretch, but I just vividly remember like growing up with not a lot of resources and I really felt like my dad instilled a lot of work ethic in me and my dad was like the hardest working dude ever, but he could never catch a break. But I saw him get up after, you know, starting this and then someone, some investor did this and then everything collapsed and he was always like four or five people down the ladder where he saw it coming but didn't have any control over it. And I think for me personally, if I had to like actually analyze myself psychologically, um, I think seeing that and then realizing we can deploy that same work ethic but we can also control our outcome the way that a lot of people that I see in my life can't was something that was worth getting up every day and working for. You know what I mean? That's amazing. Yeah. And I think, no, dude, I feel it. Like if I was rich, if I grew up rich, I don't know that I would have the same work ethic. I hope I would. I think my dad would have instilled that whether we were worth $10 billion or $10, but I just know what I know. And my experience was you have to, be the first, my dad would always say, you have to be the first one in and the last one out. Yeah. You get a job, you start at eight, you're out at five, you're in at 750 and you're leaving at 520. Yeah. And you're going to make yourself indispensable wherever you go because that is how you stay relevant. And so then when you start putting that work ethic into something that's intangible like creativity and then you realize that you're with a bunch of like-minded people I think it's different than a business model like we're selling cars or I'm, you know, I'm opening up Chick-fil-A franchises. It's like we have this thing that people want and we're the only ones that have that IP. And it's up to us to continue to grind and refine and do that. You know, every band I feel like is almost like releasing an iPhone. Like it's only yours and everyone else can copy it. But if you're being authentic, like everyone knows the difference between a Galaxy Note and a proper iPhone 11, right? Yeah, dude. It just feels different because it's the one that started. It's the real deal. And then all these other people jump on a bandwagon and try to copy it, which happens in music all the time. There's yeah. 55 Post Malones out there, yeah, but no. there's still only one Post Malone. As long as he right. keeps pushing and grinding, he will continue to stay relevant and he's going to see 54 other Post Malones gone in five years and he'll still be here. And that's, that's what I love so about cool. the music industry is like people can fake the funk for a minute, but when it's real, it's real. And when you work hard and you're good at what you do and people understand that, I think people want to support that. And honestly, I don't know if that sounds too like uh, egotistical. That's not what I'm trying to come off as. It's more just... If you get your shot, do not lose that. Like work twice as hard when you have more money than you ever thought or more people at your shows than you ever thought. Don't take that as, oh, I made it. I'm going to chill. The producer will figure out what to do with that song next time because now I have money to hire five people. 
we worked harder and harder every album, regardless of the amount of resources we had or didn't have. That's so cool. I love that. That says it so well. Yes, that doesn't sound egotistical. That's awesome. Another thing about you, and when I kind of figured this out, it, it blew my mind a little bit, but there's something that you call being an edge theorist, I believe, yes? Oh yeah, edge theory. Let's go. Yes. So, okay, I was unfamiliar with this and I've seen you do these very big, grandiose things, right? Because like, I mean, again, we know the story of Under Oath, it's amazing, but there's also things that, like, like King State, where I just see you do things and it feels massive. And it feels massive in one sense, yet the attention to detail is so perfect. And hearing you talk about that, I was like, oh my God, that's it. So could you explain that to me a little bit? Yes. So uh, I think a little bit of context and backstory. I did not yes. come up with this idea. Um, okay. I started working with my friend, Joel Cook, who is now like one of our really good friends and he's an investor in King State and he owns Tension Division with Brandon Reich who does like Under Oath, 21 Pilots, Corn, everyone now. They're like a big branding agency. But similar thing with Tension Division is the same theory as King State and Under Oath. And Joel explained it to me one day and I was like, oh, I, that's, that's what I think I do. I just never called it that. And I, I think he just coined it. But he's like, yeah, edge theory is basically taking an idea, a concept, and going as far out into space to where you can't even see the idea. It's not even real anymore. And then slowly backing it back until you have a glimpse of it in sight. And that is the goal. Like if it's, yeah. if it's visible, if it's attainable, even on a long shot, you start there and then you prune back the concept based on restrictions. Where a lot of people go, I want to start a coffee company, King State. We want to be a brewery, a coffee roastery, and we want to be a restaurant. So the standard business plan is save up five grand, buy a roaster, sell coffee to your friends and family, save up 10 grand, buy a bigger roaster, sell coffee to your friends and family, and then this guy, save up 15 grand, buy a small brewing, brewing system, repeat, build, debt-free, brick by brick by brick. That is technically normal, and it's true. It's a good business plan. And then yeah. there's the King State model, which is we want to be a brewery, a coffee <laughs> roaster, and a restaurant, and we try to do it all in a two-year span. <laughs> and it kills you. And in reality, like our edge theory model for King State is making our own wine one day and having a full-scale brewery that we have on site and having a full-scale restaurant, having a wine bar. Like that is the goal. That is the edge theory goal. And then you pair it back to what you can actually accomplish, making sure that you can dial in every detail. And so it seems like it's really big and I think, like you said, like King State feels massive. Under Oath feels massive, potentially not knowing the inner workings. But in reality, it's just regular people deploying this idea of like, we can go this way, which is traditional, or we can go all the way out to space and then pair it back and then start chasing that. And if it takes us three years to get there, I'd rather be there in three years than having a roaster that's three times the size of the roaster we started with three years ago because we're, we're churning out a standard business model. Yeah. And I, I think that's interesting. I'll also add, I think that in King State specifically, myself and Nate get a lot of credit 
And then under oath specifically, you know, the five or six of us get a lot of credit. But I think one of the biggest strengths personally that we have, or maybe I have, is not being the best and being this visionary and having all of this talent. Because I think a lot of people construe that. Like, oh man, everything he does goes like this. Um, I think I'm really good at putting together a team and trusting them. Like a lot of the things that happen at King State, a lot of the things that happen within Under Oath are not me or Aaron or Spencer or me or Nate in King State. A lot of it is, but then there's this entire wave of people with us, alongside yeah. us, that come up with these ideas that we all refine and then deploy as a group. And I think people need to get past this idea of I started X company, I'm CEO, th look at the castle I have built, period. Yeah. It's yeah. look at what we've built. Because you, I don't, I don't know how to articulate that, but I think there's something to be said about people, similar to the band conversation we were just having about luck versus hard work, you have to recognize both. You can't yeah. be fake humble and say you don't deserve anything because you've never done anything. It's all luck. And you also can't say you deserve everything because you built it from the ground up and I don't need nobody and I'm this and I'm that. Dude, the, the truth is in the middle. And with King State, with Under Oath, with everything I do, as, as big as my ideas are, as big as an edge theory idea I may have is, and it, as, an, as attainable as it is and as successful as it could be in my brain, it's not built without a team. Well, no, I think that makes perfect sense, though, right? Because it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna have the uh, I don't know grit and courage to shoot all the way out to the moon and say how big and crazy can this be? You would be an idiot to think that you can do that on your own. Like, how could one person accomplish that big crazy thing? Totally. So, hearing you explain that, it's like okay you need to be the person that maybe encourages and finds the team and brings that out of people and reminds people that these insane things can be accomplished if you do shoot that high. But then you do have to have the humility to be like, all right, well, I can't do that alone. So who are some of the people that are the best that are also down for this? For sure. Yeah. And I think, I think that's something that people really need to be aware of is the team around you is as important as your idea. Because your idea can... There's a million ideas, yeah. you know? And I, I mean, I don't love everything that Gary Vee says. I think he's super wild, Dude, but I same. follow him and I, I love his energy. Yeah. But one thing he always says is that I think is very true. He's like, everyone's worried about ideas. Like the IP on an idea is so magical and mystical and all of the, the sauce and all of the value is in the idea. And he's like, I have no problem telling you my 25-year plan because I know nobody here is going to do it but me. And I'm, I'll give you my blueprint. I'll give you every recipe I have. And yeah. I will still end in 25 years on top right where I should be. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I love that idea of it's not hoarding ideas and hoarding uh, opportunities. It's being the person that's going to work as hard or harder than everyone else to realize those yeah. while bringing along a team of people that you care about and making sure when XYZ company or XYZ idea wins, everyone wins. 
That's so cool. And I feel it, right? Like, it's funny. The example that I think about is like Carolyn in the kitchen of like- For sure. Like y'all's breakfast, y'all's food is the best I've ever had. Like as if it wasn't enough to have the best coffee, the best beer, then it's like, okay, well, we want to be a restaurant too. How do we have the best food? It's like, are you that chef? Nah, but you found her. Sure. Yeah, I agree. And and I don't know if that's me and Nate being really good at our job or luck again, because Carolyn's Nate's sister. She happened to grow up and happened to start catering and happened to get this job and get that job and happened to be in Nashville, but want to move back to Tampa right when we needed a chef. And it's like, that's a that's a weird universe thing. But like, and so what even is with that, King State, right? it's the same thing, right? Because we're nine months, ten months old now, God. and so I think we're still in our two thousand four, or maybe even our chasing safety, like working out the kinks thing, and we'll see what happens in the next five or ten years. But right now, it's like so much hard work, as well as so many like. How did that opportunity land itself? Yeah, like what? You had best food and wine before you guys even opened your doors, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, obviously your coffee did that. It wasn't like they were just like throw a dart, but like- Oh, no, the- for sure. But yeah, I mean, to be the only coffee shop that wasn't even legally allowed to open and be eighth best coffee shop in the country from a reputable magazine was like, dude, this feels too similar. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it, it but- feels like- O four warp tour all over again. It's and I'm just sitting nuts here like, what is happening? Like that was like our Atlanta warp tour moment. I'm like, wait, what? Like I woke up to text, like we didn't know. Everyone's like, dude, congrats. I'm like, for what? <laughs> yeah, but it's it's just like it's so weird to me, right? From the outside to look in and be like, well, there's clearly something special about you and about that Florida pocket and the people. And yes, part of it is luck. And it's like, yeah, like Carolyn was Nate's sister or like even like Dan Newman, like happening to follow y'all and then being this incredible videographer. It's like, how does all of this magic, how do these incredible people happen to be drawn together? Yeah. It's crazy. And you've been around so much of it that there has to be something about you yet. I'm talking to you and you're just like, I don't know, man, I work hard. Well, I mean, I think I can flip that script on you. I mean, you met me because you managed limbs for, a you know, over the course of someone's career, let alone a lifetime, a very brief blip period of yeah. time. Yeah. But now we're sitting down and having a conversation. So why are you still here? Why are Why am I taking time out of my day talking to you through a computer right now at 2.44 EST in the middle of the week? <laughs> like... You, we happened to cross paths. You met me by luck. I met you by luck. But then after that, the luck runs out because I've met a lot of people and you've met a lot of people. And so it's like, I think when you look back and go, all these people, Dan Newman included, taking time out of their day to talk to me, I don't know what that is either, but it's not luck anymore. It's you have something that people want. I love talking to you. You have good perspectives. You're a kind person. We happen to have these weird Florida ties that we only knew after we met each other, not before. So there's no predisposition there. Like, oh, that makes sense. Andrew's from Florida. Tim's from Florida. Under oath, we get it. Like, I never knew all of that until a year into knowing you, right? So it's like, that was a dumb luck scenario. And now we're on the back end of hard work and like commitment and follow through on keeping a relationship alive. And we can go months without talking to each other because- 
you don't depend on me for anything. I don't depend on you for anything. But when your phone call comes through, I'm always going to pick up if I can. And that's not luck anymore. That's the work we both put in. And I think I have a lot of people in my life like that. And I have a lot of people that I've met and don't pick up their phone calls even when I do have the time. You know what I mean? So I think like there's something to be said about that all goes back to like building a good team and recognizing talent, recognizing kindness, recognizing honesty and good people. And I think the biggest strength I have in my life is I generally surround myself with good people and I invest my time similar to a stockbroker. My time's the most precious thing to me. And, and, and I, don't, I don't care about money. Like I'll risk everything on a King State idea, edge theory vibes. And if it all crashes and burns, I'll just start over. Like money is replaceable. My time isn't. So yeah. like I try to be very prudent with my time investments. Like I want to spend time with these people. Why? And if I can answer why and how and what for, then it's a good investment, you know? And, not to, and I'm not trying to boil down this conversation as an investment because neither no, of us have anything no. to gain here. But I think friendship is something that a lot of people, 50-year-olds don't have that. There's people I meet every day, they're like, I don't even have a best friend. Yeah. And so for me, it's like, I've been fortunate enough to accidentally meet a lot of great people and me and all of my current friends are past the luck stage and now we're just building relationships with hard work the same way you build a business or a band with hard work. And it's like, that can't be taken away. That's and I, I, I prefer that story cool better. You know yeah, what I mean? No, and like it, literally one of the podcast notes that I had that I wanted to touch on was I personally think that you treat people better than most all of the people I've ever met. And you have this energy to you where like you can be really intense, right? Like you you can really come into something, but I have never seen that as like, oh, this guy's too brash or he's a dick. It's like, you're so passionate about what you believe in and hearing you explain people being so important makes a lot of sense to me, right? Like I even remember there was one phone call we had and it was like, you were, I don't even know what it was, but it was something like your son. Like you were telling your son that he could or couldn't do something and you explained why. And I was just like, the way that you instilled that discipline, the way you explained it, even that blew my mind. And I'm honestly (laughs) curious, like, where does that come from? Like your, the way you treat people, the way that you do give people the time of day, like, what is that? Um... I mean, first off, I think there's a lot of people that would disagree with you. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I, I am direct. I mean, even talking to you now, like merely the fact that I can kind of see you in a video format just to like feel like I'm in a conversation. I feel like I'm at a bar with you and I'm yeah. like waving my hands and I'm, I feel like as a listener, I probably sound very intense and I'm not trying to be, but like- I get overstimulated very easily in like a good way, I think, but it comes off very intense regularly. Um, I, I very easily can be a dick, especially when I know I'm right. Mm. And, and even that is a dick thing to say, because no, mm. you think you're right, Tim. No, I know I'm right. And I'm not going to let it go. And I'm going to pummel you until you 
either leave or agree with me too. Like that's how my brain actually works. But then you can be proven wrong. Like you have that. Oh no, I'm totally down where, to be proven wrong. Yeah. But it's really hard. So, but one thing I've noticed is a lot of people are not direct. So for me, I don't, I can't, I can't mess with people that dance around ideas. Like, mm. Use your words and tell me what you're talking about. Whether mm -hmm. it's like my son, my wife, Elizabeth, my family, under oath, King State. Like, don't, don't massage something to get what you want out of what we're talking about without saying what you want out of what we're talking about. Use your words Whoa. and just say it, please. Like, dude... You want to hop on a phone call? Oh, do you happen to have Pro Tools? Would you maybe mind recording it? No, dude, tell me what you want. You want to talk? You want to do a podcast? Yes, I'm in. Like, yeah. this is how life works in my brain, but not, not just in business, like everywhere. And that gets me in trouble a lot. Like, yeah, but I, yeah, I, I think I, that's a good I thing. think you appreciate it. I think yes, yes, you're I do. the perfect person to look at me and go, man, he's so intense and raw and direct but also so kind. Other people go, man, he's so intense and raw and direct and he's a fucking dick. And I'm totally okay with that too. Because yeah. I'm also okay with knowing that like most people don't like owning up to stuff and talking about stuff, you know? Um, so with all that to say, uh, I will take that compliment and praise um, with all of those caveats. But as far as like why I'm like that, it's like, I think my dad, I keep going back to my dad, but I mean, he literally instilled this thing in me, similar to work like with people. Like he would get mad at under oath dudes in a car ride to drive me to the exit from Brooksville on the way to band practice because other guys were coming from Clearwater or Tampa because they wouldn't take the 20 minute loop to get off the exit to come to my house. And he was totally happy to do it, but in his brain, he was wired to where he's like, dude, in Long Island, because they're all from New York, uh, like so-and-so was caught in the snow and this. Like he would just tell me these stories. He's like, this is how real friends do. This is how mm. real things work. This is what real friends do for each other. Like it's, it was almost as if he was trying to tell me, don't be like that even though he Whoa. knew it was so stupid and inconsequential and they would have come and gotten me. He was happy to do it. But on the way, he would teach me these lessons like, no, you go to their house and you bring them a beer. Or, yeah. you know, you, we, we would go to parties, you never show up empty-handed. And if you bring something, you don't take it. If you bring a bottle of wine to a dinner party and nobody uncorks it, do not take that freaking bottle of wine home with you. Like, little things like that, like common courtesy things were just instilled in me in very small ways and then very large ways all the way to like work ethic. And it's my mom and my dad, but really my dad, because he just had this idea of like, you break your back, like full on like Bible stuff. Like yeah. someone asks you to go a mile, go to someone asks you for your, you know, their shoes, give them your cloak and it's whatever you got, you know, give them everything yeah. you can. Even if it hurts you, give that to them. Then he'd also come back with some like hard line, like this is where you draw lines and you are fully supported to stand your ground on these lines and don't let anyone bully you. Don't ever let anyone tell you you're wrong if you know you're right, you know? And he didn't say it, but he's like, fuck those people. 
yeah. in that moment. But then if they, need, if they need help moving next week, you better be <laughs> the first one there and the last one out. But I if just, your man's I, is going crazy, you can stomp that dude and you can stand your ground. So it's like, but how do you deal with that? Like as a normal person who wasn't raised like that. Like I almost I think like I don't I'm know. Jekyll and Hyde to some people. Some days what? he's the best. Some days he's going crazy. And for me, I'm like, dude, I'm just shooting it straight. And I'm not always shooting straight. But if I feel like we're right, we're going to have a fight about it until I realize that you're right. I just, I think I really do appreciate that. I think that that realness and just being direct and, and saying like, there's never an undertone and it's, it is backed by these kind morals and that intensity. Like I know it's there for a reason. And I I think that that's a really cool example. And that's, I'm so glad you explained that so well, because that side of Tim is like, I think there needs to be more of that. So I hope that just by that being on a podcast that is spread and understood more, because I think that's really special. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, I can't take any credit for it. And it's also my curse. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think when, when used properly, that headspace is very positive. Right. It could also well, I think you can't go south that. really quick. <laughs> you right. Like I mean? you couldn't listen to this podcast and be like, oh, I'm gonna be direct and it doesn't matter if people think I'm an asshole. Cause it's like, well, no, you have to also be kind and caring and empathetic and understand when to say you're wrong and understand when to step up. Like it's not just there's layers to it, I guess. But I think that you're one of the people that executes those layers better than most or any I've seen. There is a lot of layers. I mean, I went through a whole period where like I realized I wasn't meek. I wasn't um, uh, uh, just slow to speak, quick Mm -hmm. to listen, slow to speak. All these like weird kind of like mystic Bible verses and, you know, uh, yoga stuff and like Hindu stuff. Like I was diving into all this through like a weird deconstruction phase of my life. And I realized like I was none of those. And I was like, man, I I just, I want to try being more calm. I want to try being silent for a day. And I think those things are really good. Like I still would love to go on like a 48 hour silent retreat because my brain would implode. It, I would probably feel like I'm on acid because I can't talk and I can't debate. I can't uh, exchange ideas, but I think it would be really healthy for me in a balanced scenario. So it's like, I, I, got, on, I got on a trip though, similar to you, like going, yeah, somebody's gonna listen to this and be like, oh yeah, I'm gonna be direct. You know, no, you, you have to be you. Like, I think the biggest thing is like, I'm not trying to be direct. I have to try to not be because that's naturally me. So it's like similar to Under Oath. Why is Under Oath successful? Because it's real. Why is King State successful? Because it's real. Why is, you know, why are we talking about an appreciation from you specifically about my directness? Because it's real. I'm not trying to be direct because I watched some TED talk about being direct or heard a podcast. So it's like, you are not as direct or as loud. And I would prefer to not ever see you yeah, trying you don't to be want me. want to see Tim V2. And you don't want to see me try to be like you. Like you're yeah. chill. Like your <laughs> voice is like this. And you're like, dude, <laughs> that is so sick. You know? And But that is authentically you. Yeah. And that is exactly who you should be. And if you're anything other than that, like you're cheating yourself and you're cheating me out of actually knowing you. So it's like, it's just a self-awareness check is really important. And then also realizing that it's like, it's not this, well, I own it. Like, you know, I'm a bitch. I own it. I don't give a fuck. Like you can't (laughs) be one of those people either. Right. So it's like self-awareness and then like 
self-inflicted work once you're aware mm -hmm. of things that are not actually good is really healthy. And I, I have to yeah. do that work all the time, you know? Damn. That's cool. That says it, dude. Damn, that says it. All right. So we hit our hour. There's one other thing that I do want to talk about, and we don't have to dig too, too deep into it. Cool. But at least right now with the current times, all things coronavirus, it's crazy. King State blew up, had insane success. And I've watched you do something really cool where y'all, not you, but all of King State has pivoted and uh, read the room in a really cool way. Like, I think that you're doing an incredible thing for the community. I didn't get to really touch on how important I think that King State is for Florida and for that city. And I know we've talked about that a lot as for friends. Sure. Yeah. I ride for that. But just, I guess, just talk a second on what King State is up to right now, how you've pivoted and made all this work. And uh, I guess just that, really. Yeah, I mean, um, maybe we should talk about what King State is. Yeah, yeah, okay, uh, yeah, yeah, that's better. <laughs> yeah, so King State is a bar that I own with my brother-in-law, Nate Young, who's also the drummer of Amberlynn, and we randomly married sisters and started roasting in my garage five years ago, and then we have a bar, and we're a brewery, and we brew all of our own beer, and we have a from-scratch kitchen, and we roast coffee, and... We are in our 10th month of having our first bar open. Um, and five months later, we opened our second bar, which is when me and Andrew were trying to do this podcast. Yeah. Uh, so it's been a crazy year. Um, but yeah, so then coronavirus happens. And we had a team of 25 and I had to let 17 people go, 18 people go. Um, so we pared down our team really quickly um, based on the fact that we were not able to do dine-in service. We didn't have jobs for anyone. And, you know, the business basically got cut in a third. And so we're down to our five admin staff and then myself and Nate, uh, six admin staff actually. Um, and it's just the managers and myself and Nate running the bar day in, day out. Uh, we're doing takeout only to go, uh, delivery with Uber Eats and just doing what every restaurant's doing, just trying to figure out new ways to be creative and be sustainable as well as be safe. Um, yeah. And Eric, our head brewer, who brews all of our beer, makes this pizza and he makes it for all of our King State events or at least most of them. Um, we did a beer collab with Hidden Springs Brewery in Tampa and the day that they were bottling all that stuff and kegging it all, he brought his pizza oven over and made handmade pizzas for them. And we've done a King State dinner party and he made handmade pizzas for all of us. And we just had this idea of like, what if we just did like Eric's pizza and we just did a pizza night on a Friday and it is now, yeah, we're nine days in, but this last Friday was our second Friday. So two Fridays ago, we launched it. Um, we had like 50 pizzas that we could make and we launched it at four o'clock and we were sold out by four eleven, and it was a disaster. Like our POS <laughs> system said, pick up ready in 10 to 15 minutes. So we had like 35 people there in 10 minutes and it was like an hour and a half wait for the last person. It was crazy. Uh, that's edge theory gone wrong, by the way. <laughs> right. Oh. 
So <laughs> um, we were like, yeah, we'll do this. And sky's the limit. And it was. And, and we went all the way there. And it took a long time. Um, but, but what was proven was a concept. So then we started spending the entire next week figuring out what the next steps were. So we tripled the equipment. We yep. doubled the amount of you know, product we could make. We, we changed everything in the kitchen to be able to do things more efficiently and at scale, but still consistent. And then we had 85 pizzas last Friday and we thought, man, this is going to be a great idea. We doubled it. <laughs> so now we'll go to like five. We sold out in three minutes. Stop. And so now we're in the third week, which will be this Friday. We have 120 pizzas and we have an extra piece of equipment and we're going to see how it goes. But it's like, I think that's a very, those ideas are very, very indicative and hearken to like this entire conversation, which is being dynamic and like seeing white space and seeing places that nobody's touching and being brave enough to go there, but also executing and doing it well. And also realizing you're not going to be perfect and you have to learn every week. And it also reinforces the team aspect, which is like our brewer makes these pizzas. He's a chef every Friday. Like (laughs) him and Carolyn, our head chef, are like co-chefs for pizza night. And then we have three other people just making pizza. You know, hand-kneading dough. Everything's handmade. The dough's handmade. It sits overnight. It's like this really boutique, like Neapolitan dough, like attention to detail, quality, scalability, and edge theory all combined is King State Pizza Night, and it's crazy. And so it's like, now we're talking about how to deploy that moving forward, even past pandemic, when the dining room's open and Fridays and Saturdays are just pizza and like building all these new ideas, which again, was not part of the original business model, but being able to have the freedom to like see maybe what other people might not see, or even if they do, they're like, oh, that's too much work. It's a shit ton of work, but it's worth it. And if you don't care about work, then get to work because, <laughs> because somebody's going to build it. If it's not going to be you, it's going to be somebody else. Yeah. So like, it's been really cool. And on top of that, we did a whole, you know, t-shirt campaign for all the employees that we had to let go. So mm-hmm. King State's doing really well on sustaining the last eight people in this weird transition along with a lot of the, you know, applying for government assistance, like every other business we're not a sob story and we're also not a hero story. We are one of a million restaurants going through the exact same thing. But mm-hmm. we did this like big benefit for all the employees that we couldn't keep on. And yeah. Jordan Butcher, Studio Workhorse, the guy who designs all of our stuff, designed t-shirts. We put them up for like two or three weeks. Thought we'd make like a thousand or two thousand dollars spread out over 20-ish people, 17 people. Like it wasn't gonna be a lot. But, you know, it's something. And we ended up raising over eight grand. And so, like, all of the people that I laid off two weeks later got this benefit money check. And it was almost a full paycheck while they're still waiting for unemployment and doing that. So it's like, I think that to me sums up who I am, who Nate is, who King State is, which is we're going to hustle and always work as hard, if not harder than every other restaurant to keep things moving forward for the restaurant side. We're also going to donate as much time and as much resources as we can over here to keep people going as well. So it was like, 
we had a benefit initiative and a King State Please Stay Afloat initiative happening in real time in tandem. And it could be done better if we had five other people. But the fact that we could pull all that off with eight people is insane to me. And, and that's what I think it is. It's like, it's maybe my vision. It's maybe Nate's vision one day. It's maybe Eric's vision. It's maybe all of our visions. There's edge theory. There's application. There's having a good team that can execute all with a human factor of going, but there's all these other people that aren't going to share in these wins. So how do we work for them to alongside trying to make sure they have a place to come back to work? In six well, months. I was just going to say that. I was like, yes, this is something that we're all dealing with right now, everyone. But I'm everyone. so certain that King State will stay afloat through this. And then when this passes, you better believe you guys are going to be there taking care of your people better than ever. In many cases right now, for somebody to get fully laid off and not furloughed is better because they're going to get better unemployment and it's going to be better for them. So it's like, it's just cool that even... No one could have expected this. You're probably hit harder than many industries. And even in the hardest time, I'm still talking to the same Tim who is still pivoting and staying dynamic and doing the right thing. And I think that's fucking awesome. Doing our best. And I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's that's it. Until the lights go out for these, these dudes over here in Florida, we're always going to be doing that. I love it. It is my favorite example that is ever set. Um, I mean, dude, we hit our time. Did, did I miss anything crucial here? I don't think so. I mean, we okay. kind of covered 2004 to me remembering cutting grass all the way to <laughs> this new weird problem we have with not being able to make enough pizza fast enough. So we've covered wins, <laughs> losses, and weird stuff in between. It's been a great, I think great so. hour and a half or 75 minutes or whatever this is. Yeah, it was a very, I really, really loved this. Uh, where can people find you or King State? What's what's the best way to support and find you or anything like that? Uh, I am on Instagram. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's at my name, Tim McTagg. Uh, I do not do Facebook. Uh, King State is king-state.com if you're in Florida or mm -hmm. want to support and buy some shirts or whatever you want to do. Um and that's and y'all are it. still doing, yeah, you're still doing subscription too, right? Coffee subscription? Yeah, yeah. We yeah. did a, uh, so uh, actually something we didn't really talk on, but going back to like surrounding yourself with good people, um, Grant, our bass player, under oath bass player, and yeah. his wife, Sam, donated $500 to King State, as well as my aunt, Colleen, uh, donated $500 to King State. And so we started a King State Cares Fund. And mm. so that's for hospital workers, and industry people that are laid off that can't afford coffee or whatever it is. And it's just an open tab. And we ended up just sending uh, like 15 pounds of coffee to a hospital unit in New York who's just bogged down in an ICU unit that literally has no way of getting anything. They can't even get masks, let alone coffee. So it's been, it's been cool. And that's a perfect example of like, we're going to get the credit for that. But there's so many other people that made that happen. Our friend Gio, the merch guy for Breaking Benjamin, asked yeah. me about that specific hospital. I said, dude, we happen to have these other people already donated money. We're just the conduit. That's a perfect fit. We sent off the package. So it's like wow. really interesting to see a lot of really cool things kind of happening in a really rad way. And it's like King State gets the glory. I get the glory. Nate gets the glory. But it's just it's so much bigger than one person or one idea or one podcast. So it's like, 
I think that's a really good spot to end on. It's like everything that we do is only because of everyone around us being great people as well. I love that. And yeah, I think that really does say it. There's so much of a feeling of community with everything that you do, King State does. And I think that it's it's very much showcased right now in this time. And I know that it will continue to be in every way. For sure. Well, dude, thanks for having me. Hopefully Bro. we can uh, do it again. Yeah, right? I'm, I'll be back in Florida soon enough. <laughs> awesome. This all passes. Dude, thank you. Like, for real, thank you. This was so incredible. I know that your time is valuable, and, and I'm honored to be able to have this conversation with you. Oh, dude, my pleasure. I'm glad we could finally do it under very weird circumstances. Hey, man, we made it work. Yeah, man. All right, dude, I'll talk to you soon.